This episode was recorded before the catastrophic Turkey-Syria earthquake on February 6th. Conversations may not reflect recent events. Hi, I'm Lina Sergiatar and welcome to Belongings, a podcast where we talk about home and have conversations about the places that create, shape, and sometimes break us. of Belongings, I speak with international lawyer, activist, podcaster, and my dear friend, Lara Elborno. Lara is the creator and co-host of the Palestine Pod, a weekly podcast covering the struggle for justice, freedom, and self-determination for the Palestinian people. Lara has mentored at Karam House twice and focused her workshops with Syrian teens on building confidence, critical thinking, and public speaking skills. We explored the concept of belonging and its significance on the lives of refugees, particularly Palestinians and Syrians. Lara expressed a fascinating shift for me for her notion of home from a geographic state to something more rooted in connection, even when those connections are scattered across the globe. I deeply valued speaking with Lara about the parallels and differences between the Palestinian and Syrian experiences, the challenges faced by displaced people, and the importance of returning home. Please enjoy my conversation with Lara. Hi, Lara. Welcome to Belongings. Thank you for having me. We're really excited to have you today for everybody on the podcast. Here we have my friend, Lara Alborno, calling straight from Paris. And I want to tell you a little bit about Lara. She's an incredible, accomplished woman. And I'll read a short bio about her before we dig into our conversation about belonging. Lara is an international lawyer in Paris, originally from Chicago. She works in international arbitration and is an American-French qualified lawyer. She's a longtime supporter of Kerem Foundation. She is passionate about pro bono work. She represents asylum seekers before French asylum jurisdictions. She has also advised NGOs on issues like whistleblower rights and French prison reform arising out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Lara has been a visiting mentor at Karam House twice, tackling complex subjects like global human rights and designing a debate club workshop. Through her work with the refugee teens, she focused on building their confidence, critical thinking, and public speaking skills. Lara is at the forefront of Palestinian activism, often covering breaking news on Twitter and social media around the occupation. In 2021, Lara started the Palestine Pod along with her co-host, Michael Scherzer, a weekly podcast that covers the struggle for justice, freedom, and self-determination for the Palestinian people. You can follow Lara on social media on Instagram as at Gazengirl, on Twitter as at The Gazengirl, and The Palestine Pod at The Palestine Pod. Welcome, Lara. Thank you so much. That's an incredible bio. <laughs> I didn't give you that. You well, made that. A- That's amazing. <laughs> You're an incredible human. So I just want to start just by asking, like, how are you doing? How are you these days? How is Paris? I'm doing very well. Thank you. I'm uh, staying very busy and uh, having to remind myself to slow down sometimes, but uh, still very active in asylum work, still doing my, you know, the crux of my work, which is uh, international disputes work and trying now to see what really are going to be the next steps for the Palestine pod and my passion project. So yeah, just trying to stay very active. You're very active and very inspiring. You know, we're going to get into the Palestine pod and your work, which I think is incredible, and also your work with Karam. And I wanted to start by asking you if you could tell us a little bit about how you think about the word belonging and what that means to you. Well, I'm a lawyer, right? So I have to analyze the word. That's my instinct is to say, okay, belonging? How do we usually use that word? Well, we talk about somebody or something belonging to something. And so immediately there is this notion of being attached to or connected to or being a part of something. You know, somebody who is alone or lonely or uprooted, as the case may be, perhaps doesn't have this sense of belonging. 
I think belonging is a state of being that necessarily alludes to this notion of comfort. You know, when you belong to something or to a community, to a people, to a faith group, there is this notion of, of comfort. And I think uh, it can only be a positive thing to know where you belong. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I love how you're going to come at things with your lawyer hat, which is going to be really interesting to dig into these kinds of concepts and these words like belonging and home and refugee and rights and all of these pieces that um, make up a lot of what our work is about. So my second question is, you know, part of the Belongings podcast, our tradition is to ask every guest to draw a map of home. And so you drew your map just before we started this conversation. And I'd like you to tell our audience about your map of home and the story of it. You asked me to draw a map of home and I asked you a lot of follow-up questions about what it had to look like. <laughs> and then you told me to draw whatever came to me. So keeping in mind that I am not at all somebody with, with drawing skills, I had to then create sort of a map of home. A family tree is what I did because it was graphically easy to do, but also because that was the natural sort of instinct was to say, okay, home is, is when I'm with these people. And these people are, of course, the people who are closest to me in my life. At this point in time, I'm 35 years old, and there are certain core family members that I remain very close to, and there are others who I have grown distant from. And so for me, home today is my husband, my daughter, my dog, my mom, my sisters, my grandmother and my grandfather, my aunt and uncle and my cousins. And, and those really are, are the people who, when I'm with them, I have this sense of home. I have this feeling of home. Yes. Like the family tree as home yeah. and it crosses borders and places. Totally. Because if your next question to me is, well, where are all these people? You know, we're in Paris. My one sister's in Chicago. The other one is in Houston. My grandparents are in Kuwait. My cousin is in Seattle. My other cousins are everywhere, you know, so we're not in the same place. And this is very much a product of the fact that we lived the refugee experience. So when you live that experience, you go through this profound sort of uprooting and then having to re-implant yourself elsewhere. And that doesn't always happen with the people that you were with. And of course, Syrians know this better than anyone right now, because every time I meet a Syrian family who are, whether they're my clients or whether you know I meet them in another context and they're refugees and they're outside of Syria, the story is always, well, my sister is here, my brother is here, my parents are here, and everybody's separated. So that's also very much a, an aspect that we can't really ignore. So even though these people are home, they aren't necessarily all in the same place. Absolutely. And we're going to get into that kind of con the connection between the Syrian and the Palestinian experience that is very related as well as disconnected by time. So I think that you're talking about something that's very generational. And for Syrians, this in some stories are generational at this point, but then some are so fresh and you're, we're seeing it happen in real time and much more quickly. And uh, I think all of that, it introduces a lot of, you know, re-traumatization of, uh, of the experience for others, as well as, you know, us seeing Palestinians as this learning experience of what will happen in the future. And it doesn't necessarily happen the same way. And it's kind of this cycle that I have been seeing for the past over now, over a decade, if we're talking about this current crisis that we have in Syria. I think about that all the time. I think about how Syrians now are going through their own Nakba. You know, our Nakba began in 1948. It's very much an ongoing Nakba. It has not ceased by any means. And the settler colonial project is more entrenched today than it has ever been in Palestine. And Palestinian refugees are still in the millions and they are still languishing in refugee camps that were created for temporary use and by no means were intended to last decades and decades and decades. And so we're very much in a situation where our lives as a people have been put on hold, frozen in time for a lot of us. Others 
are more lucky because they were able to generations back find a place to reimplant and then start over. And so you see when you when you speak about the Palestinian experience, there isn't this one singular experience. There are people who still today remain displaced. There are people who continue to be displaced at this very moment. And there are people whose displacement took place a generation ago or two, and they started rebuilding lives outside of Palestine in exile. And, and all of us go through different struggles and we have different challenges that we face. And, and it's really interesting because I talk to my friends in Palestine, for example, who, who never left. Maybe they're internally displaced, right? Maybe they don't live in the villages or the cities that their grandparents come from because those were fully raised by the Zionist gangs in 1948 and they ended up being internally displaced, whether in 48 or in other areas in Palestine, but they still are on the land. And when we speak, there's very much this notion of they go through hell living in a modern apartheid state. But the conversation always ends with, but at least you're at home. But at least you're back home. Like, yeah. that's always yeah. what we say. Like, and they agree, right? Like, oh, like, at least we still are on the, on the land, you know, despite all of the oppression and the injustice and the, and the impossibility of living your life completely freely because you're living under this totally brutal military occupation whose purpose is to make sure that you are expelled from your land and you don't come back. I'm going to move to talk about the Palestine pod, sure. which I think is something, a really incredible project. You've been doing it for over a year. You obviously have had long and deep roots within the Palestinian movement and activism throughout your upbringing. But I want to ask you, why did you decide to create the Palestine pod? What's the story behind that? So you're absolutely right that I, I was always involved in activism for Palestine throughout you know, my, my upbringing, whether it was towards the end of high school, in college, during law school, I would often speak about Palestine. I was always involved in the student organizations, you know, organizing for Palestine. I tried to go to Gaza. I didn't get in. I went on a trip to Palestine. When I moved to Paris for work, I lost touch with that side of me a little bit because I was outside of my own community and all of a sudden... I didn't really have this venue or this space or this outlet to organize for Palestine. And, you know, for the first couple of years I was here, I was, it was eating away at me, but I didn't really know what to do. And eventually I got married and just delivered these monologues to my husband about Palestine. And he would say to me, you have to record this. Like, I can't be the only one who hears this. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? That doesn't even make sense, you know? And then COVID happened and I said, okay, the world went online. Like everybody went online so I can do something online. I don't have to be in Chicago. I don't have to be in the U.S. to organize for Palestine anymore. And it doesn't matter that I'm physically in Paris because I don't need to be physically anywhere. And right around this time that I started to, to have these thoughts, I came across Michael Scherzer's profile on social media. And for those who don't know Michael, he is a fierce anti-Zionist Jew. He's a comedian. He is fearless. He is very funny. He is just the right energy <laughs> for what I wanted to do. And I had been following him for a couple of months and I just sent him a message and I said, Hey, start a podcast with me. And he said, okay. <laughs> and that was That's it. Amazing. <laughs> Two days later, we were on a zoom call. We we're like, okay, we're going to call it the Palestine pod. And that was it. The rest is history. And ever since then, we've been recording an episode a week. We've missed like one week because I also had a baby during this time. And we just managed to show up every week. And consistency is key. And in the beginning, I, you know, I wanted everything to be perfect. And then I realized done is better than perfect. You know, what, what is that phrase? Like finished is better than perfect or something. I would take two hours to set up my, my background. <laughs> you know, before we record. And so the first episodes, if you watch it on YouTube, like there's this amazing background, I'm in front of my library, but I had to move my entire living room setup for that each week. 
And at first I had all this energy for it, you know, but then it's like, okay, well, if we're going to keep doing this for a very long time, then we kind of just need to be efficient. So now I just shoot in front of a white wall, but, um, but the feedback has been incredible. Well, it's a very rich podcast and the conversations are challenging and they do make you think. And I do love the combination of your personalities because Michael is very funny and then you kind of have to bring him back and be like, okay, <laughs> this is okay to say, this is not. And you bring in a lot of the intellectual heft. I mean, he's very smart, but come on, Lara, you're just incredible and you're always ready to go. So I really appreciate the vibe of the podcast is also you're dealing with a very heavy subject and complex subjects, but you also, because of the way that you both are interact together, you make it that it's, you know, an entertaining thing to listen to. So I wanted to ask you, you know, you've been doing this for a year weekly, amazing consistency, and it's hard. It's hard work. It also, you're dealing with very difficult subjects and painful subjects often. One thing that was very Probably the most difficult episode to record was last year in May when Israel went on a murderous campaign in Gaza, bombing Gaza for like 10 days straight during Ramadan, the events of May 2021. Yeah. And uh, I think I surprised myself, actually, <laughs> because... I would record in, in that period of a couple of weeks. I couldn't sleep at all. I wasn't sleeping at all. I mean, not, not even like a minute. I was constantly connected to social media. I was constantly watching Instagram lives and Facebook lives of, of Palestinians in Gaza, live streaming the Israeli missiles hitting their houses. That assault in May 2021 was particularly gruesome because Israel targeted so many of the commercial centers in Gaza, the downtown area of Gaza City, they leveled completely the entire building where the Associated Press and Al Jazeera have their offices. They targeted apartment buildings and you know shopping centers and so many medical centers and hospitals. The office of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund was targeted. They were going absolutely insane during that period of time. And the targets were just shocking because it was all the places where anybody who, you know, anybody would go, right? And so because of, of the way that that particular assault affected me watching this, and also my brother-in-law's family is still in Gaza, their own apartment was hit by a missile. It destroyed their apartment and they eventually had to move. And just to see that happening in real time, it drove me to this emotional state where I would talk and talk and talk on the podcast. And then the podcast would end and I would have no memory of what I had just said, but I had just like delivered a monologue that went completely viral and ended up being seen by Nikosi Mandela, the grandson of Nelson Mandela, who then reached out to me and was like, I saw this and I support you. He's a huge supporter of Palestinian human rights just like Nelson Mandela was. And uh, that's how he ended up on the podcast was because he reached out to me after seeing one of those clips where I literally blacked out <laughs> because I there was this element of living in the trauma, but then also having to communicate it in that moment. So I, I wasn't forming memories. So I didn't have any memory of what I had just said. But Michael, to this day, he says that that was one of our strongest episodes because of just the sheer amount of information and emotion that was in there describing what was happening in Gaza at the moment. And so I think to bring this back to surprise, I surprised myself because I didn't know that on such little sleep and in a moment of extreme stress where I saw my loved ones stressed about what was happening in Gaza and I saw my sister stressed for her husband and my, my brother-in-law stressed for his family and and getting messages from my brother-in-law's father, who I communicate with, you know, telling me that, you know, they were just ready to die and they were all just sitting in the same room and just sort of, you know, renewing their shahada every moment. And in this entire experience, when all of this is happening, that I was able to put it to something that managed to educate people who otherwise did not know about Palestine in that moment and really take advantage of the fact that for those couple of weeks, the world's attention was turned to Palestine. This process of education mm -hmm. on a mass scale and combating the decades and decades of propaganda and distortion 
that has been carried out by the mainstream media. And it's certainly being done by Palestinians all over the world. And it's certainly being done first and foremost by Palestinians on the ground who are the, who are the best educators of the brutal system that they live under. And who, you know, if I can add to that in any way, then I have to, right? Because I have this responsibility as a Palestinian in exile. I have certain rights and privileges that I can't let go to waste. And I can't, you know, just rest on my laurels or whatever the, whatever the phrase is, you know, kick my feet up and just say, okay, well, we made it. So it's, you know, it's really sad what's happening, but no, there's this immense responsibility to do something and it's not much, but it's all I can do. So if, if that's all I can do, then maybe that can help change the conversation. It can be part of the, the various elements that are going to eventually create the snowball effect. I mean, I felt very deeply a lot of pieces that you were talking about and that sense of responsibility and the sense of the weight of the information and having that in real time and being in that moment and being in that spot is definitely something very difficult. And so what I wanted to ask you about is this idea of the long-term activism. I mean, you're talking about generational trauma as well for the Palestinian people. And how do you sustain yourself as an activist, especially now you have this weekly podcast, your activism lives in this space that does need a lot of attention, does take a lot of work. How do you sustain yourself to keep going? Because I do think so for a lot of us, we do get to this point of, which I, I really despise this space, but I understand it, is that you do get to this point of saying, well, things are bad. What am I supposed to do? Because it's hard to keep going. So how, how do you do that for yourself? And what, maybe what, what advice would you give to others that are in spaces of resistance in their own causes and are trying to do the same? I think activist burnout is real, and I certainly don't judge anybody for needing to take time to get themselves together and to put their mental health first and to make sure that they're in a position where they can go back to this work if they are able to. But in my own personal case, if I ever start to feel that fatigue, which I do because I'm a human, right? I sit there and I just think about what the generations before me went through, and then I snap out of it. And for me, it's that easy, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be that easy for everyone. And that also doesn't mean that everybody needs to be an activist. Some people need to focus on the skills and the talents that they have that may not have anything to do with activism. And then they put that to the service of their communities, which in its own way is a form of activism. I think we have to be creative about what it means to be an activist too. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a lawyer or that you have to study international relations or that you have to go before the UN, you know? I think that's an antiquated way to look at activism and what it means to try to advocate for the liberation of your people. I think it's interesting because, you know, we saw, for example, Mo Amer just like catapult to A-list status. I mean, he's in a movie with The Rock now, and he's had his two Netflix specials, and now he's got his Netflix show. And, and I think in some ways, he did a lot for the Palestinian story and pushed us towards getting our story out there in ways better than decades of remarks at the UN have, right? Mm-hmm. Because part of it is how do you appeal to the masses? But I mean, would you consider him an activist? I don't know. I don't think so, right? But I think that's why we have to sort of redefine our notion of what it really means to be an activist in this space. Well, it's really incredible. And I encourage everybody to follow and listen to the Palestine pod. I really enjoyed your first episode where you can really hear both of your stories as well. So it's one of those where you really should listen to the first episode before going back and listening to the recent ones, because you also cover current events that are also really important for people to understand and follow what's happening right now in Palestine. So I wanted to turn now to your experience at Karam House. We are so excited that you came to Karam House twice, once to Rehanle, once to Istanbul. Your sister has also come and you've contributed so much to our project and our programs, especially with the Syrian refugee teenagers. And you did something very different both times. And also maybe something that I think is out of the box when you think about what somebody would offer to a group of Syrian refugee teenagers. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about your workshops and about what that experience that you had. 
Yeah. So the when we were in Rehanli, we did a, a mock trial workshop, which I, going into it, had no idea how this was going to go because, I mean, just the ages of the children, are they going to understand what this is about? I'm going to separate them into, you know, plaintiff side and defense, and they're going to have to take these facts and, you know, construct an argument. And But they surprised me and completely blew me away beyond my wildest, like, imagination in terms of the creativity of the argument and how how much they got into it and the questions and the participation. It was just totally mind-blowing, honestly. And then it also just made me realize the amount of potential that these children have and the reality of it needing to be nurtured. And the fact that this space, Karam, exists for them is without a doubt going to be one of those foundational things for them as they grow up in these new communities. And that's going to help them establish themselves as intelligent, independent, hardworking people who can fend for themselves in this world. I mean, I really believe that that's what Karam is doing for them because it's giving them this space and this time and this opportunity to explore and to try new things and to develop new skills and to get a little uncomfortable, right? Because they are doing new things. And these are all things that are really going to contribute to making them these completely autonomous and independent and capable adults. And so that's why the Cotton Project really speaks to me. But I also think that's why the mock trial worked so well, even though I was teaching mock trial to, you know, kids who were like some, I had some students who were like seven or eight. Some of the youngest kids were really young. The second time around when I was in Istanbul, I wanted to work on communication skills. Now, usually when you think about a summer camp, uh, you know, you think, okay, photography workshop, painting class, you had this amazing 3D printing workshop, which was so cool. You know, you think of theater, whatever, there's uh, plenty of things that you can teach kids in a summer camp or in an after school program setting. But Usually like debate isn't necessarily the thing that pops out to you in this sort of summer camp vibe. But I think it was particularly important for me because I realized that, you know, what's the one thing that they're going to need as they move into adulthood? They're in this new country. They're uprooted from their previous lives. And that is the ability to advocate for themselves. You know, The reality is for a lot of these Syrians that are in Turkey, they're facing an incredible amount of racism. They're facing a deep sense of insecurity in terms of everything that they knew is gone. And now they're starting all over. They had to learn a new language and they're very much living what, if they don't know now, (laughs) they will certainly realize as they get older is a trauma that is going to have to be dealt with at some point. So Karam for me is in a way working to combat that because it's trying to give a sense of stability where there is no stability. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that can be a form of healing. And I think (laughs) one of the things that's particularly important that I also realized was the debate workshop was also a way for them to keep speaking Arabic. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, because... Part of the problem of being a refugee and being uprooted is the inevitable loss of language. If you don't struggle against this, your children will lose their language. And I was lucky that my mom forced us to speak Arabic. She forced us, would pretend not to understand, would become, you know, if we spoke English, would make us repeat the word in in Arabic. And then I studied it in college. And then I still to this day take Arabic classes because I don't want to forget it. And because I have to teach it to my daughter. So this is something that anyone who's in a situation of of being uprooted needs to keep in their mind is how do we keep our sense of community alive so that it doesn't die generation after generation, which is almost inevitable, but it's not if you make the effort to teach the language, to teach the religion, to teach the traditions, but it has to be a very, very conscious effort. I mean, we see that a lot in the spaces with the kids because when we started, and I knew this was going to happen, it's just how do you even prepare for it from when we started 
we had an opposite problem of how do we get the kids to learn Turkish as fast as possible because you need to get them into the schools. The problem was is that everybody had these gaps in their education because of the differences of how they became displaced and refugees were, you know, months and years apart and everybody having a different kind of experience in the war and then getting to Turkey. And the first thing you want them to do is get them into school because the faster that happens, the better off they're going to be. But nobody knew Turkish. And I already knew, I, t- I told our team, we always used to speak, we're going to get to the point where we're not going to have kids who know Arabic. And now mm-hmm. we're there. And that's where the development of a national sort of story becomes really critical. Because as Palestinians, we've been in this for over seven decades. So we, But we know we're Palestinian, even though most of us right now are on the outside. And nobody would say, well, I'm not Palestinian because I don't live there. Well, a lot of people don't live there. That doesn't negate their Palestinian-ness. But we've had to struggle with that notion of, okay, well, how do you define that? And for us, a lot of it is, where are your grandparents from? What are their cities called? Where were they expelled to? What's their story? That becomes the Palestinian experience for the generations afterwards is the the awareness, the knowledge of the origin of, of where you're from, because that's what they try to deny to us today. Yeah. So I it's think... important for them to know where they're from, to know the city's name, to know Absolutely. what it what it was like, to know what their parents did, you know, in in the city before 2011, to know who was all there, you know, and 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 what what are the traditions that they used to have and to try to recreate that where you are in exile because it's inevitable it's going to happen but then that that will be what it means to be syrian until one day you go back home or you don't but you have to redefine it in that moment because it's no longer being in the land it can't be that anymore right yeah one of the things that happened when i was just there in june was you reminded me of this story where one of the students pulled up his phone. I don't know what we were talking about. And because, you know, in Kerem houses, we don't talk politics or religion. It's one of the things that we have. We want to have kids be and be accepted and not have the divisiveness that we have in conversations and not have an agenda other than, you know, the well-being of the kids. And so some conversations, we let conversations flow very naturally and openly. That's the most important part. And this kid opened up his phone and opened up Google Maps and wanted to show me exactly where he was in Aleppo, from Aleppo and zoomed in and in and in and in. And I felt like my heart palpitate because he was even using language, things that I've said before saying, you know, you use the citadel as your marker of where you orient yourself on this map. And he kept zooming, zooming, zooming. He was like, this is my neighborhood. This is my house. And there were a bunch of teenage boys, you know, in their, you know, 15, 16 years old. And they were starting to discuss between them where they were when the protests were happening and the revolution was happening. And I haven't had a conversation or heard kids talk about the revolution in a really long time. So I'm listening and they were like, we went out in this protest and we went on that protest. And one kid was saying, well, you were only three. You don't remember. You don't remember the revolution. You don't remember the Thoda. And I was just in awe because it was this moment of that second generation memory of people who their memories are very fuzzy. And the pride was who was six versus who was three at that moment moment and talking about the protests. And you could just see it's now the second, it's the displaced memory already started for us. Yeah. And that just shows the work of the parents of those children who are trying really hard to make sure that those kids don't forget. And like you are bringing tears to my eyes, actually, because this reminds me so much of there's so many clips of Palestinian children, for example, in refugee camps and in Lebanon or in Jordan and, and, you know, documentaries that were made over the years where reporters will go in there and, and ask them, where are you from? And then they'll tell you the exact village that their grandparents came from, the name of it, where it is, what it looks like. And they'll tell you that they're going back. Here we are three generations later. The right of return is essential for us. Palestinians have the right to go back to Palestine. It's our right. It's our moral right. It's our legal right under international law. It's our right as human beings to not be displaced from our homes and to be able to live in our homes. This is just a basic human right. And our children need to know that. And mm-hmm. and I'm going to raise my daughter with this awareness so that if I don't 
see a free Palestine in my lifetime, that if she sees it in her lifetime, to know that she can go back to Palestine. That is her country. And, you know, the other side of this is before we go into the rapid fire questions and close this conversation, is that the other side of, you know, the importance for me of somebody like you coming to Kerem House and talking to the students and giving them workshops in human rights and this mock trial and creating a debate club. And then everybody else who comes to Kerem House is this idea of it's not only about being Syrian, it's also being a citizen of the world, of finding your place in the world and building empathy through that, you know, what we're trying to teach them, which is the intersectionality of things. And you were such a huge part of this to bring in, to talk about different movements in the world. I remember the kids telling us about how they learned about Black Lives Matter, how they learned about the feminist movement. And this for me is so important because you can't talk to Syrian refugees all about Syria. I think this is also a problem that we have in our culture that we just want to talk about our own struggle. We won't just talk about like, you need to learn X, Y, and Z because you're going to go back and rebuild Syria. That annoys me to no end in that you can't put that kind of burden on kids and young people in that exactly what you said, for us, it's we're teaching you all these skills, and these skills are going to make you much more of than just a refugee is how you know that your current situation views you at. And if you go back, we go back. And if you don't go back, you move on. But wherever you are, you are a citizen of your community, and you're a citizen of the world, and you build empathy with other causes as well. They're just as important. And the struggle continues. It does, and it will continue beyond our lifetimes. And, uh, you know, we are just one part of the, the puzzle in the small amount of time that we have been allotted on this earth, which sometimes I think about, you know, the length of time and then the amount of time that I'm here. And then I realize that actually most of the time I'm not here. I haven't been here and I won't be here. <laughs> so in this amount of time to use that to leave something better behind. That's super inspiring. And we really are so grateful for all of your work and I'm grateful that you are my friend and it's it is a pleasure watching you grow and I hope the Palestine pod becomes bigger and bigger and you continue to grow and create to actually inspire others and share this information this important information with the world and you know we're all doing this together to work to leave something better behind I think that is the greater goal so thank you thank you so much Lena it was a pleasure so we have a few shorter questions. Oh yeah, let's do ask. it. So the first one is complete this sentence. Home is where? Home. Oh, fuck, this is not even going to be short. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> okay. In the beginning, you asked me to draw home and it was people. Then I started thinking about home in discussions with Palestinians that I know. And there's often this notion of back home. So home is Palestine. But then I also realized that home is also a state of being. It's a feeling, right? Because, you know, people say, make yourself at home. So that's, that's like a feeling of serenity, of comfort, security, right? So there's different answers to this. And sometimes they don't necessarily line up neatly. So for example, Palestinians may feel at home in Palestine, but there isn't any security there, but they're still at home. But then today, if you ask me like, where do I feel at home? I feel at home when I'm in a space surrounded by my loved ones. And there is that feeling of serenity, of no anxiety. And I think for refugees, this is super important because part of the struggle of being a refugee, especially a new refugee, is that there's tremendous anxiety about what's mm -hmm. going to happen next, about how you're going to start over, about what you're going to do, about how you're going to make it, and this feeling of not being at home. But eventually it gets better because you will start to build again and eventually you will start to make a new home. Thank you. If you had to leave home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be? I mean, apart from my family, because I'm not going to leave them over a box of photos. <laughs> so this um, was actually designed to be the, you know, the thing that you'll take to remember. The, the thing I will take to remember. Non-essential thing. Yeah, sure. My thobe, my Palestinian thobe because I feel so Palestinian wearing that. I love that. And uh, that's an incredible feeling. So yeah, I would take my thobe. Beautiful. 
I think you answered this already. So if you think that we have, we could move on. But I want to ask in case you had something else to answer for. What's one piece of advice you would give to a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place? It will get better. That's it. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> so I know you call several places your hometown. So I would like you to choose one. And if you could give us a list of three unexpected places people must visit when visiting this place. I don't like questions about unexpected because then there's like this pressure of like, I have to surprise you. <laughs> yeah, you have to give us three Look, unexpected places in Paris. If you come, okay, I will, I will give you one thing. If you come to Paris, you have to eat at a, at a small restaurant called The Dirty Lemon. It is run by my Palestinian friend, Ruby, and she ha- is one of the only owners and chefs in Paris that has a Palestinian restaurant that is explicitly Palestinian. And part of the problem, part of what we're seeing is this movement of sort of Mediterranean and Levantine and all of these things, but nobody's saying that they're Palestinian. There's a few Syrian restaurants actually, but almost nobody is saying that they're explicitly Palestinian. And then on the flip side, there's dozens of quote unquote Israeli restaurants serving our food. So this is a problem. So in order to support Palestinian woman, chef, business owner, anybody who comes to Paris should go eat at the Dirty Lemon. Well, we'll put that in our notes and share the link (laughs) to her as well. And I'll look her up. That sounds great. It's a great name too. Yeah. It's, she has a weird story behind it. It's, I know it's it's unconventional, but you know it's we're millennials, and she's you know creating something new, right? It's 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 modern, but it's inspired from the, the the food of Palestine. Love it. What dish tastes like home to you? I thought about this before we got on, and although my favorite Palestinian food is msechan, I only started eating it later in life. So the thing that reminds me the most of my childhood, which to me is heavily associated with home, is either molochia, but the soup kind, not the wara kind. Mm. I have to specify. (laughs) Or wara anab. Grape leaves. Yes. Those are, I mean, some of my favorite food as a child. That's amazing. My last question is, what's a book or books that you love and have recommended to your friends? Well, I don't know if you want book recommendations from me because... (laughs) I read a lot of, I, first of all, I don't read fiction. So, um, I'm really sorry to any, you know, I know that fiction is great. I have nothing against it. It's just purely a question of time and wanting to educate myself as much as possible on real like things that have happened because it's, I need to know them. Right. (laughs) So I have nothing against fiction. I just don't have the time. And we can so one of my about how about the reality of fiction too. Sure. And look, I'm not a literary person. Again, nothing against it. I fully support everybody reading fiction if it makes them happy and if it, you know, does all of these great things to you. It's just not something that I have historically committed to. So anytime you get a book recommendation from me, it's gonna be nonfiction. And it's usually gonna That's be good. about history. Um, Or religion. So right now, one of my favorite books is called Reasoning with God by Professor Khaled Abul Fadl, who is, I think, one of the most brilliant Islamic jurists and American law professors. He has this amazing dual training as an Islamic jurist, but also was a lawyer and a law professor. He's absolutely brilliant. And his book, Reasoning with God, completely reshaped the way that I live and understand Islam. That's powerful and a great recommendation. So we will link to that as well. And I will be looking that book up as well. Lara, thank you so much for being on Belongings. We really appreciate you and your work for everybody. Please follow Lara on Instagram, on Twitter, follow the Palestine pod, check out the podcast and follow this work. It's very important. And I really appreciate you taking time today and being on our podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. My conversation with Lara was insightful, inspiring, and eye-opening. Having roots in so many places, Lara's understanding of belonging spans beyond borders to something much bigger, family. Her map of home was not only of a place or an area, but of people, and it made perfect sense. It took me back to my conversation with Lama, one of our team members from Karam House Istanbul. Lama is a member of the Karam Families Program, a program that provides refugee families in need with financial support on condition that the children can remain in school. Lama works with some of the most vulnerable refugee cases, families who have lost home and oftentimes hope. 
but through the power of family, of togetherness, they are able to get back on the path of self-sufficiency to rebuild and restart. Lemma herself had to leave her hometown Damascus behind. Here's what we talked about together. Hi, Lama. Welcome to Belongings. Thank you. Hi, Lina. I'm so happy to be with you. I'm so happy that we're together here at Karam House Istanbul. First of all, can you share a little bit about what you do here at Karam House? Actually, I'm, I'm one of the best parts in Karam House. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> for me, actually, I'm, uh, I'm with the Families Program. I've been with Karam for uh, six years now. Yeah, in, in February, I'll be uh, six years. So it's been six years with the families program. I started with Karam when the program was launching in Istanbul. This program is one of the biggest programs of Karam Foundation. And for me, it's one of the best programs, actually. It's a program to support families and education for children and to get the children back to school. This is something that I think everyone will be lucky to work in this in this kind of work or, or in this kind of program. So I feel so lucky to be in this situation and to be in, in contact and face to face with the families and uh, to, to be in direct connection with them. So yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's incredible work. Yes, we're so happy that you've been with Karam for such a long time. And you really are. Lama, if you're at Karam House Istanbul, she is the joy and the heart and really the soul of Karam House. She really brings, you know, when the kids come in, she brings the joy and the laughter and all of the games. So we're always so grateful to have you. Thank you so much, Lina. Actually, it's Karam House itself, the, the, the house, the, the culture, uh, the work that we do that give you this energy and give you this positive energy to be with the kids all the time, to see them grow, to see them improve and have new skills and learn something. You learn from them, you see them learning. So this kind of environment give you this energy and this positive vibes, like they say. I know, I totally agree. <laughs> so we're going to start with some questions about you and your journey and your story. So my first question to you is, what does belonging mean to you? Actually, it's a big word, I think, and it, it has a lot of meanings for anyone who can, who can talk about it. But I think for the Syrians, this word is a tough word and is a nice word. For me, it's a word that means home. Remind me with my family, my Syria, Damascus. This is where I think I belong. This is where I always keep reminding myself that I have to work to, to do something there. I have to do something with the kids, maybe we're working with the kids, uh, giving a, a good idea about the refugees, about how successful we can be, just to give it back to my country one day, someday. I don't know when, but we can do it, I'm sure. So belongings is... Um, for me, like I said, it's at a fault, but I see it for with the hope because for me, Syria is the most amazing country. <laughs> I love it so yeah. much and I love to work for it. Uh, even I'm, I'm out of it. Uh, it's been like around eight years now. Yeah, eight years apart from Syria. But although I still feel belonged to there and uh, maybe Karam House is the best place to be when you have this belonging to your country because you see, you feel like you're doing something to help your country in the future. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. So my second piece is uh, an exercise we do with every guest. And I ask everybody to draw a map of home. Mm -hmm. I call it a map. It could be a floor plan. It could be a drawing or a symbol. And home is very open. It can be the past, the present, the future, a dream, anything you want. You can take about like five minutes. And okay. then you're going to tell me the story of your drawing. Okay, I'm going to try. Yes. I'm not going to go with drawing. I'm going to try. It's okay. That's what everybody <laughs> says. But then everybody draws something. Okay. Okay. I think I'm not good. I'm not that good, but I'm trying try to give a yeah. story about it. So tell us the story of your drawing. Okay, so you you told me to think about home or my journey or whatever. So I thought about my journey, actually. This is my house. I live in a building on the seventh floor. So this is my house back in, in Damascus. And this is our street. It has a lot of trees. It's an amazing neighborhood. I love it so much. And then I drew an ununderstandable phase of my life. That was when I was out of Syria, the first year in Turkey. It was the first time I'm apart from my family, far from my friends, my work, my country. So this is something no one gets it. It was so windy. It was so foggy, like, I, like yeah. they say. Yeah. And then I have what happened here in Turkey with me. After a year of being here, I attended Karam House and I learned that there is a Karam House and started working with Karam Foundation. And 
seriously, they made my life. I spent so much time in, in Karam. When we were starting, you know, that Lina, we took so much time to, to build everything. We have a lot of details. I was involved in everything from the little things to the large things. So that gave me a cause of why I'm doing and what I'm doing here in Turkey, especially after leaving my home. It was so hard for me to leave Syria. I felt I'm not going to be able to do anything anymore. How am I going to help my people? And Karam House was the window for me. And if I want to think about the future and the good thing about the future, I think about my house in Damascus and I think about Karam House back in Syria. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's I'd the dream. To have, uh, yeah, I'd love to have some place like this back in the home. Me too. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> Maybe we'll do it someday. Thank you so much for Thank this you. story. I'm, sorry, I, I'm always talking about Karam because this is, <laughs> this is a huge part of my life. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, it's totally understandable. And I love your story and the story of your journey. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you if we want to go back to the families program. You have worked in it so long. You've really established this families program and you've met so many people along the way. So you can tell us a little bit about some of the people that you've worked with, uh, some of the kids that we've helped. What kind of impact does this program have on people? Actually, it's so much uh, kinds of impact we have on this program. The nice thing about the program or the great thing about this program is the effect. It's not about this, just the financial aid mm -hmm. or the financial support. It's an impact that uh, can stay for the future, can affect their direct life, their daily life, their principles, how they look at the, the situation, how they're looking about to their kids, to their future. So the most thing that maybe, there is a hundred of stories actually, if I'm honest saying that. I mean, I'm sure there are. You literally know, yeah. she literally means this. Yeah, actually for me, each one we met in this program is a story. We have a story for the kids, for the mothers. One of the stories that I'll never forget is, is the mother that were with us. Uh, when we met her, she was recently left Syria and she was with her kids. She has four kids and with her husband. And they were suffering from a lot of health issues due to the bombing they were. They were in the chemical attack and they had a lot of problems and injuries here and her kids. The house they were living, it was big humidity you, you can't breathe in it it was so much bad and uh, when they joined the program it was a steps the first step that all the kids was back to school because she couldn't even register her kids in school it was she was new here she didn't know a lot we helped her uh, how to register where to go mm -hmm. who to call all those those details uh, she registered the kids they started and she started to find another house and they found, found a healthier house they moved to another house and then we know that she wasn't that happy with her husband and there was a lot of problems happening and she didn't have the courage to stand on the on, on her own uh, she's always when I met her she's saying that uh, he's not working he's not helping I'm doing all these things but you know she was afraid to take a step on her own and then she started to study she went back to school she studied yeah. a college a dental assistant and she got divorced and now she's responsible about her kids her kids are now in schools and they are actually from the excellent students wow the good thing that that's this is what i'm gonna tell you this is a story that touched me someone talked to me about two weeks ago and told me did you remember the girl that was with us at the program and she studied i tell her yes she said i was in a doctor appointment and a dentist and she worked there and she just she was working there and she just went see she saw me she told me if you see lama or you see anything of karam tell them that i'm now working i've graduated wow i'm working i'm helping all my family the kids are in school the big one is in high school now and he's gonna go to college too wow so now she is depending on herself yeah. At all. She doesn't mean, need anyone, her family. She doesn't need anyone. She is just completely responsible of her family. She's working. She's another person. So yeah. when they told me about her, actually, it made my day just to hear about that. They saw I, her working. They saw her working. And I know she's working. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to visit her. Actually, you have there. to go. Yeah. She is an amazing girl. And this is one of the thousands. Yeah. Seriously, thousands. Because I think every person in this program that we met is a story and is a success story because when they came to this program most of them they have no hope actually and when we start working with them some of them always tell me this sentence that I don't forget it at all I can't believe someone is doing this to us they can't believe someone is generous to them someone is good to them this is a huge thing and this is the most interesting thing about our work yeah. and this is what makes it so so 
touchable, touch you, touch uh, everything you feel, everything about the belongings. You see, yes. you're giving back to these people. This is amazing. Actually. This is why I love about this program. I mean, I think also, you know, you're describing something when you have an investment in a human being. And you tell them that you, they can reach whatever potential they want. And we give them the tools. And, you know, financial support is just a tool. Finances really won't change your life unless you make it into a tool to change your life. And because you're not going to be able to get financial support forever, but then they're able to make this and then make their own lives. And then they don't need anybody. But everybody doesn't want to have to rely on support from anybody else. Exactly. And this is why I told you the story, because this family stayed with us for two and a half years. So it wasn't that long. It's not about the financial, it's about the support that she took from us. The mental health support, even the health support, everything she saw in Karam House made her just believe in herself. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. And I mean, she's one of our 10,000 leaders. Yeah, sure. Yes. <laughs> Well, so I'm going to go into the rapid fire questions. And these are the questions that I ask every guest. Okay. So the first question is, complete this sentence. Home is where? Home is where you can have your dignity, where you can raise your voice, mm -hmm. where you can help people without being afraid, where you can build your dreams and have it cut through. Home is Syria for me. And one day Syria is going to be like this, I'm sure. I love that. If you had to leave your home and take one belonging with you as a memory, what would it be? Actually, it's a box. You know that the Damascus have this kind of uh, drawing on the boxes, the old boxes. That yes. I have. And I have one, actually. I took it from Damascus. Yeah. It's for my grandmother and I have it in my, in my home. It's amazing. It's antique and these kind of things that I, I take it wherever I go, actually, just to remind me with Damascus and everything there. Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> What's one piece of advice you would give to a young refugee who's trying to find belonging in a new place? So not necessarily Syrian, anybody in the world, somebody left their home and they're trying to find belonging. What would you tell them? Don't give up. Mm -hmm. Don't ever give up. There's always a hope. Even if it was so dark, even if there is nothing you can see, a positive thing, there is nothing good happening, one day it's going to come and it's going to happen. And just keep dreaming and Don't give up at all. Whatever happened, don't give up. That's great advice. I think that's advice for anybody, <laughs> really, not anybody who's just uh, who left their home. Give us a list of three places that people must visit in your hometown. Nice. Okay. Uh, I'm from Damascus. So in Damascus, you should go to the old city. Mm -hmm. This is an amazing place with the Omui Mosque. In Syria, you have to go to see the Parada River. There is a lot of nice restaurants over there. And you have to visit, I don't know if it's still there. I heard yesterday they, they took it off. But mm -hmm. It's an amazing place. There is this old shops and all antiques. The people who just handmade everything. I hope it's still there. I heard that they are going to evaluate it. So I'm not sure. But these are one of the best places in Damascus. The old city, Tkiyislimani, and like I said, the Paradarifak. Wonderful. <laughs> I hope it is still there too. It's beautiful. Yeah. What dish tastes like home to you? Mm, nice question. <laughs> I don't know in the English word, yeah. grape leaves, stuffed grape, grape leaves. leaves. Yeah. In the Damascus way, we do it in the, in the Syrian way. Whenever I test it, I just feel like it's Syrian. So this is <laughs> me too, me too. Um, what's a book that you love and have recommended to your friends to read? I'm not that kind of reader, but I read a book that affected me a lot, The Shell to Mustafa Khalifa. This is a, a book about detainers back in the 80s, and he was at Tadmor prison. And it, it's a very, very, very emotional. And uh, this is one of the most books I ever, yeah. I ever say. I, I recommend it for everyone who feel, like I said, he feel no hope, doesn't know anything about what happened in Syria. You have to read this book. Yeah. It's, it's one of them amazing books that I've read. It's very famous. And yes, I agree. Everybody should read it. There's a lot of quotes. Uh, there's yes. a lot of things that you heard. And it makes you think about everything happened in, in your life and everything is going to happen. It's an amazing book. Actually. Thank you so much, Lama. Thank you for being on Belongings. And I always love talking to you, love your energy. And I'm very grateful for all of your work. Thank you so much, Lina. It was amazing. Actually, I had so much fun. And uh, it is very nice to, to, to be with you, actually. And uh, welcome to Karam House again. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. So Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to Belongings. I'm your host, Lina Sergi Attar. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it to be meaningful. This episode of Belongings was produced by Rama Majzoub and Noor Al-Ghrawi. Episode researched by Ghania Chowdhury. Podcast artwork by Suleiman Faour. Music is Inni Mneeh by Mashro' Layla. Please follow, rate, and review Belongings wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow Belongings on Instagram at Belongings Podcast. If you would like to support building a sense of belonging, community, and well-being for refugee youth, please visit karamfoundation.org. Thank you, everyone. See you next time.